Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Welcome back to a brand new episode after a short break. I promised myself I would take the summer off from making any episodes, but in the end I could not resist bringing you some new content. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I've been running two series alongside each other, the main series and the marine series, which is a collaboration with the Marine Conservation Society. In this episode, we're coming away from the ocean and coming away from the normal content to bring you something a little bit different, and we will for the first time be talking about a book. There are so many brilliant new books um, coming out and I've been lucky enough to read quite a few of them so far and we will be doing more of this kind of thing in future episodes. But for this episode, I was joined by a journalist, editor of The Shooting Times and author of the recently released In Search of One Last Song, Patrick Galbraith. In Search of One Last Song is a collection of personal histories which focuses around several bird species that are on the brink of disappearing in the UK. Patrick set out on a journey to learn more about these birds and he tells the story of the personal relationships of different people with these birds. This book to me felt more, it felt more than a book about birds. It was a book about people and real people and how we can learn so much about the natural world if we take time to listen to the voices and experience of these real people who are so in touch with their surrounding landscapes. I don't want to say too much, as I'd love you to go out there and read the book for yourself, but Patrick and I were able to sit down and have a chat about the journey he took to write this book. There were so many questions I wanted to ask, however, the cafe we were in was closing soon, so we were a little bit pushed for time. But all that's left to say is thank you for coming back for a new episode of the Mountain Conversations podcast. Sit back and enjoy this episode as we go in search of one last song. So today I am sat in a beautiful, what would we call this, a booth, a shed, a kind of cafe shed in a stiff key on the North Norfolk coast. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, a beautiful mint tea, so a, a quick shout out to stiff key stores if you happen to be visiting the area. Um, I am sat opposite Patrick Galbraith, who I'm going to dive straight in and say, can you t- introduce us to what we're going to talk about today? So I'm sure we'll cover lots of things, but talking about my recent book, In Search of One Last Song, which is about 10 bird species that are disappearing and the people trying to save them, well, that's what it's sort of about in short, but it's about really how birds are so deeply embedded in British culture and what we'd be set to lose if we lost them. And you know, there are some of them what we probably will lose if things don't change uh, quite dramatically and quite soon. Mm-hmm which is heartbreaking, but I'm sure we can go into it. And I'm looking forward to it, having just read sort of what I will, um, what, three quarters of the book, <laughs> as you did only give me it last week. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed, actually. I'm, impre- I'm impressed. People can read it pretty quickly. It's funny, which I'm yeah. not sure whether that sort of means it's, you know, too easy a read or uh, or whether it's sort of, or you know, just praise right. of sorts. So, yeah. <laughs> or just right. But yeah. first, um, as I ask all of the guests, um, 
I want to know sort of, obviously I've read most of your book, I want to know what it was that got you into nature, why do you care about nature, why did you write this book, what, what was your journey to it? I think really, I, I was thinking about this the other day and I think about it quite a lot. Um, my very earliest memories of interacting with nature are probably of fishing. Um, you know, I remember being like six years old and catching a six pound sea trout with my godfather and uh, him saying that it was you know, one pound of sea trout for every year of my life, which is maybe still one of the sort of, um, you know, my greatest accomplishments maybe. But I think you know, interacting with wildlife in that way, um, even, you know, my mother used to take me along to the fishmonger to um, hold the lobsters when I was a child, which I really liked doing. And mm -hmm. I found that sort of, there was something about that, um, you know, just something fascinating. And I think, you know, right, right up to being slightly older and I used to go out with an air rifle and shoot rabbits and make rabbit casserole, um, which I'm not sure, I mean, you know, I'm not that old, I'm not sure if sort of young teenagers still do that but but certainly through doing that I developed I think a really profound respect for rabbits which maybe sounds strange but um, I think I think through that and then through noticing things when I was out and how the seasons changed and looking at how rivers changed and so on so that's been my route into this really yeah well no I think it's I think it's important to sort of develop that respect for nature and you know we've all got a way of doing that and as it's funny you say about the uh, going to the fishmongers my seven-year-old loves going to morrison's <laughs> and standing in front of the we all we all love going to morrison's <laughs> don't we all um but he loves standing in front of the fish um the fishmonger section and just asking questions and the, the the fishmongers normally will sort of happily engage with him and he asks so many questions sometimes they look at him like shh um, <laughs> but he you know it's it's I think it's brilliant that he, he well it's a very to. visceral thing mm. and sort of you know in an age where we maybe um, don't come across death so often mm. I, I think it's an important thing for, for people and, and you know if, if people decide that actually you know they, they, they caught a fish and they never want to do anything so horrible again then fine but I think it is good to, to, to do those things and certainly I remember um, really clearly kind of the stink on my hands after cleaning rabbits and mm. then making um, casserole and rabbit pie I used to try and make um, and the book sort of starts off with that uh, and it was a really yeah it was a, it was a visceral quite um, quite earthy experience but certainly for me anyway a very valuable one mm -hmm. so should we dive into it yeah your book which I have in front of me here and as I say I've, I've done my best to speed read in a week in search of one last song I will be honest the first I'm quite an emotional person. Right, I don't know. Right. I don't know. I haven't always been. I think it's <laughs> since kids. Um, but I think I'm going to lose my page now to find this. There's a, there's a bit in it where you, it was in the introduction where you talk about why you wanted to call it what you called it and yeah, stuff. And yeah. I'll just read the sentence. Is I wanted to know what we really set out, what we're really set to lose when our birds have gone, and I decided then to set out in search of one last song, and that just like hit me yeah because obviously yeah. you know we're, we're all after the same goal you know conservation is a big thing on all of our minds but that just that one line mm, i think it was mm. so powerful yeah i think i think you know what i wanted to do from the off um is i wanted to sort of show people why these birds matter so mm -hmm. i think you know we know that these things are going everybody knows that we're are in a sort of state of crisis, but what does it really mean when these birds go and sort of how much poorer would, would our culture be if we didn't have mm -hmm. these birds? And I think, um, you know, there are people, and it's maybe difficult to relate to this perhaps, for some people in urban spaces, although I think that's not wholly true, but you know, there are people whose whole sense of identity is really built around birds and mm -hmm. built around the places that these birds live. Yeah. Uh, they become sort of totems. And um, 
you know, it's it's amazing to go and talk to people who, you know, who who will tell me that you know when the first turtle doves of the year come back, they find it a deeply emotional thing because they know at some point they won't. And there's that whole sort of time between hedges and farming in uh, in in a sort of old sort of a way, and then the, the birds that rely on these things. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think as yeah, like you say, with the birds coming back for the first time for me this year, it was my first year living somewhere where I had swifts. Yeah. And every single day, I could they, to start with, I was like, oh god, that's so loud. But as I sort of got used to it, it kind of I looked forward to it five o'clock every morning they'd be sweeping above the house screeching and I knew that it meant something positive that they were here and, and it's that time of year yeah. it's that sense it's, it's birds as a harbinger I read there's a there's a book called Salmon by a guy called Mark Kalansky um, that I was reading a while ago and there are some deeply moving passages about them damming rivers in the states and the uh, the salmon don't run anymore mm -hmm. and the the um, the Native Americans who live there sort of um, you know um, somebody just came to take some flowers away. Um, <laughs> but the Native Americans who who live there, you have found that a deeply distressing thing because you know the salmon meant so much to them. It yeah. was a sense of connection, but also it was a sense of time and yeah. the seasons changing. And I was sort of thinking, well, you know, you know, to to what extent is that? relevant here and I think it is relevant but it's often easy to look at other cultures and mm -hmm. think oh well you know isn't that amazing and isn't that yeah. fascinating instead of isn't that quaint uh, and we sort of forget that actually you know these birds are part of our lives too yeah. and part of our culture too. I think yeah I mean I've, I've, you know I, I call myself a bit of a bad birder but I don't think there is really any such thing I think anyone that's sort of passionate about them and, and you know interested in them is, is a birder but I think Again, so many people, you know, you get so used to seeing a wood pigeon or, you know, your town pigeons and stuff. Yeah. You just think, oh, it's just a pigeon. Yeah. And it's yeah. so easy to think, oh, it's just a pigeon. But it's about how do you get over that and how do you, like, like you have done in your book, talk to the real people about what actually matters and what they mean to the environment. Well, also, you know, pigeons habit. Pigeons don't feature in the book, apart from in passing in lots of places, I'm sure, because I'm really <laughs> interested in pigeons. But, you know, I was having a chat the other day with... Um, with a, a gamekeeper not far from here, and he was saying to me that he has noticed that pigeons, he said pigeons are changing. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, they've become a suburban bird. Mm. Um, and he was saying he doesn't see them anymore on the kind of um, barley stubbles and wheat stubbles in the way he used to. And I thought that was really interesting because, mm. you know, he said to me, he said to me, you know, there's hardly a pigeon on the place anymore. And I thought that was really <laughs> fascinating because, you know, he's noticed that and yeah. the way that he sort of, you know, the pigeons always used to be there after yeah. the combines um, had been out. So, so yeah, these, these things that don't sort of, uh, that aren't noticed, but by some people, you know, they're they're noticed to a huge degree, and mm -hmm. they, you know, they're almost sort of existential things. I know when I'm driving along, I noticed the other day I'd never seen a field of pigeons before, and it must have just been, you know, combined, and and there was there was hundreds of them. Really, I've never yeah. seen them. I'd only ever really seen them sort of in my garden, or, yeah, you know, when yeah, you, like, yeah. like this kind of environment where they'll be pecking around for food. Mm. So to see them like that was absolutely amazing yeah. to see so many of them. Well, I think though often it's actually you know this whole thing of you know are you keen on nature? Well, it's sort of um, there are lots of different routes in. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, as farming has changed, the habits of pigeons have changed, and I think that's really quite interesting. And sort of you know, with um, more and more rapeseed being grown in this country, yeah. um, you know, pigeons do better and better. And that's really so. I guess my interest is people, really, and yeah. how people relate to nature. And in this book, you know, there are sculptors, there are poets, there are yeah. uh, you know, fishermen, there are reed cutters, there are hedge layers. And it's sort of what I'm interested in is. Is, is talking to them about the way that they see the world changing yeah. um, and the way that sort of, I'm very interested in the way that, that their knowledge is, um, is is kind of listened to and appreciated or, or not. Yes, no, absolutely. I think as we were discussing just before we started recording, I, that's what I really am really enjoying about your book is that it's 
real and you're to you're talking to the actual people on the ground and the people who are sort of as you said who've just been looking out of a window for 20 30 years and have mm, seen mm, the changing mm. landscape yeah. and i think that's so important to sort of highlight those voices even you know uh, the the knowledge of there's a lady up on um up on North Uist, and she said to me, yeah, what are you doing? When she was there in her garden digging with a fork, and I said, oh, I, I'm here for the corncrakes. And she said to me, you won't get corncrakes on this wind. Um, <laughs> and she said, wow. the wind yeah. just hadn't changed yet. And, the corn and, yeah. and I thought that was so fascinating because, you know, that's the sort of thing that somebody would tell you with a master's degree, and you think, wow, that's, that's really interesting. But, you know, she just made this observation. Yeah. And I don't know, I didn't get the chance to say to her, at what point did that kind of click for you? Yeah. But this kind of um, folk knowledge and the extent to which sort of folk knowledge and deep knowledge um, uh, and science kind of respect each other um, and dovetail or otherwise I think is really interesting. Yeah I think you know as, as, as I've said a lot there's a lot of barriers and there's a lot of um, exclusivity in nature and mm. especially in conservation and things it's so it's there's so many stories of, of, of land la landowners people just looking in their garden who have so much knowledge yeah, and who are yeah. overlooked. Yeah, I mean, landowners definitely. Also, I mean, I speak to only really one or two landowners in this book, but there are there are people who are, as much as anything, it's about sort of roles that are disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so how much coppice is there in this country that's out of rotation? And, you yeah. know, those would have just been people who were in those woods and listening and, yeah. and thinking um, and, and hearing. Um, so that's really, that's that's a really interesting thing, I think, too. You have these this dual decline of, of, the, of the people who are doing things that sustain habitat and of the birds that rely on, mm -hmm. on those habitats. Yeah, so I'm really interested because obviously this, this this book was about your journey as well, going and learning and speaking mm, to all these people. Mm. But how did you, how, how did you decide that that was what you were going to do? <laughs> how did you decide? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and go to all these far-flung places. And <laughs> it's really interesting. It always wasn't a conscious decision. It's sort of <laughs> my publisher keeps on saying, "Well, what's the next book going to be on?" And I, I keep thinking, "How did I hit on the first one?" Like, I don't know. <laughs> it just happened. But no, I think it. I re I did realise there was a moment when I realised that if I didn't see the, the likes of, you know, a nightingale and a turtle dove and a capicaylee um, soon, then I possibly never would. Mm -hmm. It'd be very easy for me to turn around in, you know, 20 years time, um, at the age of 49, and be like, oh my God, these things are basically gone now and I haven't seen them. Um, so that sort of sparked this whole thing. But also I was, um, I was having a conversation with um, Chris Packham, who I'm sure lots of your, most of your, of your listeners will know. And, um, you know, we were talking about what we could do, uh, various things we could do, and I sort of reflected at that point as I was walking back from that meeting that while we were talking, there were people out there who were really doing, people mm -hmm. who were doing absolutely everything they could, um, and I sort of wanted to go and I wanted to go and speak to those people. And, and you know, the great thing about writing this book is that one thing led to another. There was, yeah. you know, a, a Thatcher I was talking to, and he said to me, "Oh, you really must go and talk to uh, the Randall family because they're the reed cutters that, for four generations, we've got our reed from. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they know a lot about bitterns. And it's sort of so. It was this this sort of following my nose and following this path, and and the path kind of, you know, fell before me kind of as I went. Mm -hmm. What do you think was the most sorry, really basic questions that I've just been wanting to ask when I've reading when I've been reading it? But what was the sort of most powerful one for you? Was the is the one that stands out a, a story that you heard? A person I think so. Um, I received a, an invitation yesterday from a guy who was a, a big anti-fracking uh, mm. protester yeah. um, in 
just beyond Salford, the Manchester Mosses, mm. um, and uh, he's having a tea party to kind of, you know, um, one year on from when they fought off this, this fracking firm. But he said to me that when he was a boy, so his father and grandfather and great-grandfather were dockers, mm. um, and he then, you know, he spent his whole life there um, in Salford, uh, looking, you know, at the birds on the docks, and yeah. he said to me that, you know, when he was young, because the docks were obviously closed down, he said when he was young, he said there were boys who used to come here from all over the world, and he said the only thing now that connects these docks to the rest of the world are the birds that migrate here, the birds that go and come back, and to me that was really, that was really what I wanted to do was to explore how birds give people a sense of place. Yeah. Um, and how birds sort of allow people to relate to the rest of the world. I found that really moving and, and just the way that he just campaigns as one man mm -hmm. for the lapwing to become the official bird of Salford. Mm. Um, that was that was just, yeah, that was terrific. He was doing things in his own way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that, and then talking to some of the poets I was talking to about what birds mean to them in a slightly more um, uh, literary way I think as well was really interesting yeah and I mean I think that's it I mean once a, a past guest on the show Hamzi Yassin described birds as a gateway a gateway species and actually I had a very similar conversation with someone working at um, Clive Spy the um, oh yeah yeah the, yeah. the shop uh, at the Norfolk Wildlife Trust selling um, selling the binoculars and whatnot mm. and he described binoculars as a key to another world yeah and <laughs> that's I totally like, true I was like Wow! Yeah, I know it is, and I was I was uh, trying trying them all out, and I, I, it really it really was. What was so interesting is, and this is bizarre, but I I sort of get it. Is I when I was talking to Katrina Porteous, who's a really brilliant poet um, in Northumberland, and and she said to me, I don't like binoculars, and I said, oh, what? and she said, no, they're not good for uh, poetry. They're not, you know what? Mm. And, and I sort of I do I get what she, reading her poetry, you know, this sense that that birds flip and you you. Almost that binoculars allow you to see too much. Yeah. They allow you to yeah. see things that you shouldn't be able to see. There mm -hmm. should be this unknown. Yeah. And I kind of and I kind of really like that. Um so yeah, so binoculars are a gateway, but also like the birds them themselves, I think. Um and just I, I think it's so amazing to think that, you know, not that long ago. I think it was nineteen oh eight that they first confirmed that swallows go to Africa. Okay. And before that they just didn't really know. Yeah. You know, there, there was a lot of speculation, but that was when they confirmed it. Yeah. And so so that is yeah, I love that the way that you know there are still so many unknowns. Well, no, it's the same. It's the same. You know, I was I'm fascinated by the ocean because there's so many unknowns. Again, it's that new. It's that whole other world. I think we think of birds as you know they're here wandering around. You know, so they're part of part of our world, but they're also their own world with so many, as you say, things that we don't know, things that we're learning, things that we're exploring, and sadly, things that we may never know. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that. One very interesting sort of paradox is that, you know, some of the people I was talking to in my book, they really liked knowing that this is where the nightingale comes back to. It yeah. was a very specific sort of location and these birds were located kind of just there and yeah. they'll come back again. Whereas when I was talking to um, an ornithologist about kittiwakes, he was saying that what she liked is that when they go, she has no idea really where they go yeah. and that the ocean is this completely other, as you say, world. Mm -hmm. So that sort of... The, the, and there's, there's something great in that, that these birds are sort of, you know, for one person they're providing something very specific and distinct and, and for another it's something quite vague and nebulous but kind of mm -hmm. poetic, um, or there's like poetry in that certainly. I think that's quite beautiful though in that we all experience it so differently. Yeah, 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 yeah no completely and, and it's like, um, 
you know, I mean, but it is a little bit like poetry in itself. It's sort mm. of, you know, different poems for different moments and poems to do different things. And, and, and I, I do think that poets are, are like that. Um, and even, you know, I mean, we'll be deeply unpopular with some people, but, you know, I, I also, you know, thinking of birds in a culinary context, and they do sort of appear in this book in that context. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I love, I really love going back to the wood pigeon. I love the wood pigeon, but I, I love eating wood pigeons. I love um, looking at what wood pigeons have in their crops and things. Mm. And that tells you a bit of a story yeah. in itself. So, A bit of an insight into the, yeah, the bird yeah. itself. Yeah, I mean, with trout, they really like to do that, so to see what's in its stomach, so you can see what it's being uh, eating. And, yeah. I, and I think with birds, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. It is, it is. It's, it's just a whole a whole other world as we say but uh, w what have you always been would you consider yourself a birder are you uh do you do you just like birds or how how did that i come just sound like, i just sound <laughs> like birds. i mean I, you know I, I have memories of being very young and um skewers looking at skewers i i had a well not i had i have i have an uncle who is um I used to go and stay with him. I remember going to stay there once and he was stuffing a um, wildcat. Mm. He made this taxidermy wildcat yeah. and you could crawl past the wildcat and the wildcat's eyes would light up. <laughs> and it was really, so, so, yeah. And I just think it's funny, like, you know, that he, he's an amazing guy. He did a lot of stuff with ospreys. Mm. Um, he was a deer stalker, but he sort of latterly has, um, uh, you become very outspoken against some of the sort of excesses of, of um, shooting and, and, and so on. But. Um, but, but you know a lot of his interests. I mean, I, I remember going up there and he was boiling a stag's head because they put the you know after they shoot they want to put the stag. Yeah, uh, you know, and, it, and it was all. I just found that so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to look through the scopes of his rifle and all of that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So so yeah, I, I think um, uh, yeah that that's really my kind of my way in. But but it's just yeah, it's a, it's a fascination. I wouldn't call myself a a birder, but maybe that's just being um, shy. Maybe I maybe I should. Maybe we're all birders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether we want to be or not. <laughs> I, I mean, I know my mother gets really angry when we're driving, when I'm driving and she's in the car because, you know, if I see a bird there. Anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's almost like a litmus test of, you know, whether you like it or not. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm a real pain in the ass. I slow right down if I see anything like a kite or a buzzard or yeah. something. It's like, quick, slow down, look, everybody has to look. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm really interested. And I know it's not something that's ever been covered on my show before, I suppose, because of my own sort of leanings but obviously you talk quite a lot about shooting and whatnot mm. I really want to know from, from your perspective how the shooting and conservation can link up because once again yeah. this is something that I'm only just exploring not something I've ever thought about particularly apart from being on you know strictly on the other side yeah but yeah obviously so I mean I think this book sort of makes no bones about um, the ways in which shooting can be detrimental mm. um you know uh, I, you know i don't know uh, sort of you know i sort of um there are certain people that i probably would be reluctant to say this to but but you know the number of birds that get put down is just it's just extraordinary mm. it's and and i think that you know really drilling down in my gray partridge chapter for instance yeah. um you know putting red leg partridges down and people shooting frequently. I mean, there's a very good Gilbert White, who I'm sure lots of your um, listeners will know of, who's sort of Britain's first naturalist. And he writes, I think it's in the early 18th century, he writes that partridges, by which he means grey partridges, mm. sometimes breed so successfully that some unreasonable parties of sportsmen shoot as many as 30 in a day. Mm. And you now have people who'll be shooting as many as 30 red leg partridges in one drive and they'll be, um, 
so you know that clearly is and and when you put down red legs you cause a lot of disturbance and it mm -hmm. pushes greys out but yeah. at the same time you know, if you really want to see grey partridges and you want to see grey partridges doing well the places to see them are on um estates that that are doing everything they can to try and conserve mm -hmm. grey partridges so this is this sort of odd thing whereby you know shooting on one hand is very good for grey partridge conservation and on the other hand shooting has been sort of the worst thing for um partridges going really yeah. um other than perhaps um you know the intensification of farming but so there's that conflict and that tension and i also think that um you know i was reading recently in uh, jake fines's new book uh, land healer he says that he thinks gamekeepers have lost their way mm -hmm. a little bit and i sort of think that's really unfair and i'm going to actually mention that to him because i don't think that gamekeepers have lost their way i think that gamekeepers have been forced to do things that you know they don't yeah. ordinarily or they wouldn't have done yeah. you know a lot of gamekeepers I know want to be restoring ponds. Yeah. They're interested in wild game, as it were. Yeah. Um, they don't want to, in their terms, become a chicken farmer, by which they mean just you know flooding the land yeah, with yeah. pheasants and flooding the land with partridges. Um, so it's it's a really complex thing, and yeah, shooting. I think the the, 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 the sort of in short shooting has become a business yeah. uh, and shooting wasn't a business previously and mm -hmm. you know there's a yeah. keeper at Hilbra uh, who I won't mention and I said to him when I was writing this book I said Did, you know do you think that shooting you know was ever meant to be a business yeah. and he said no absolutely not you know and there was another keeper in this book and he said that when grouse shooting went wrong was when he said there are some men who got into it who should never have been in this game he said they've got no passion for wildlife you know they've got no interest in biodiversity yeah um you know and he's pretty outspoken about that but mm -hmm. probably has only managed to be as outspoken as he is after he retired okay. so that's really interesting and i think i'm just interested in going and talking to people who um you know, really trying to, rather than having a view from the off, you know, going and, and, and speaking to, you know. So I think if you get the chance to talk to an old gamekeeper, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's always worth. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, I'm completely open to people's, uh, you know, people's views and people's experiences, most importantly. I'm, I know I noticed in Jake's book as well, he, he wrote about how gamekeepers aren't just gamekeepers anymore. They're ecologists, they're botanists, yeah, they're naturalists. Yeah. It's sort of all-encompassing role, which, as yeah. you say, it's changed. Yeah. Well, that's really yeah. interesting. I think they were. Yeah. I think they definitely were. Mm. Um, but now, you know, now, now there, are, there are, you know, not many of those wild bird jobs around. And the reason is, is actually because it costs a huge amount of money. I mean, yeah. at Hilbra, you know, which Hilbra had a big uh, goshawk incident quite recently, but, you know, before that they were doing very good things in terms of great partridges and um, but they're doing, you know, three days a season. Mm -hmm. Very expensive to have three gamekeepers for three days. I mean, it's extraordinarily expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so quite how you, you know, so I think that really shooting has to become a byproduct of conservation yeah. and that you know it should be about harvesting a sustainable surplus mm -hmm. of game okay. um you know and it's sort of ended up kind of arse about base as it were and yeah. you know you can farm in a very intensive way and you get rid of all your grey partridges through doing so mm -hmm. you know and at one point they just thought you know well what we'll do is we'll just put red legs down and it mm -hmm. means we can farm as intensively as we like yeah. um, and there'll still be birds to shoot because we're just going to stick them down so mm -hmm. you kind of break down that rhythm and that relationship well I, I know obviously I've been reading quite a lot about turtle doves at the minute as, mm. as a lot of people have and obviously in, in your in your chats from that um, I, it was talking about turtle dove hunting which I never yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what? Is that even yeah. a thing? I mean, like... In, so in Morocco and in Spain, uh, the law changes quite frequently. So, I, and I actually had to go back and the law changed. I had to revise a bit of it. But, um, you know, yeah, I, I spent I spent a morning on the phone to some people in Morocco asking how many turtle doves I could come and hunt. And they'll say, 
yeah, you know, 50 tortorelles. Um, you can come and hunt 50 tortorelles. And I just think that's, that's really, um, it's really shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a very interesting conversation with a farmer in uh, Suffolk about that. And he was just saying that, 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 you know, he's doing everything he can in terms of habitat. And he thinks it's important to realize that hunting is a problem, but mm-hmm. it's not all because of hunting that, mm-hmm. you know, he said it'd be very easy for us to point the finger yeah. without doing everything that we should be doing in terms of habitat here. So that's, um, I think, yeah, it's just important to see all of the factors coming together. So I'm interested to know, sort of having, you know, been through this journey of meeting all these people and, and you know, hearing all these stories, what, what's your opinion on sort of the future? I know that's a really big yeah. question, but having, you know, having soaked up all this experience. Well, so the, the working title for this book for quite a long time was, um, but if you listen carefully, mm. and the reason that I, I had that as a title was because about five or six different people in the book who I met said that to me. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is the future. That's the way forwards. Okay. It's, it's, it's to listen to each other. And also, I mean, to, to go and, and try and find those who ostensibly really disagree with what you know you think whatever that is and and just you know say to them why and you know mm-hmm. what do you and and uh, there's a guy in there who i now regard as a pal anyway a guy called luke Steele, who um you know luke's done like prison time for animal rights related mm-hmm. things and he's he's a wonderful he's a really wonderful guy his passion is great he's been on a sort of fascinating um you know journey as everybody likes to say um but i think we had a lot of common ground mm. you know and, and, and yeah we do pretty i mean luke's a luke's vegan and, and whatever but you know we both really like horses but um no we had a lot of a lot of good conversation and mm-hmm. i think we I, I hope that he got something out of that as well um but but i think it's easy to think that 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 you know we're deeply divided and that you know we we all think very different things and that there's no kind of resolution but often actually going and talking to people and listening to people makes you realize that you know the world is a a, a more positive place and that the future is maybe more positive than mm-hmm. you know we sometimes think i think it's very easy to sort of get sucked into debates online on twitter and stuff i do my best to stay out and just you know i just post pictures of birds from far away um and my you know allotment that hopefully will be a thing soon um so, you know, that's not my experience of Twitter, but having seen so many, it's the same on Facebook, it's all just people yeah, fighting. Yeah. And you think, we're all, we're, we all have the same common goal here. Yeah, yeah. We're all experiencing this. We're all, you know, even, even down to things like climate. We're all experiencing it. So what's the point for me? What's the point in this clashing? Even if we sit on different sides of the fence, can we not find some common ground? Yeah, no, I, I, th- I personally find it bizarre. Like, I find it really bizarre. And people who I, people who I sort of really respect you know, IRL, as it were, and I see them on Twitter. I think, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's maybe some dark part of the human psyche that I don't. It's just you know, for me, it took kind of three years and um, and travelling around and talking to I don't know fifty or sixty people and, and staying in places for sometimes you know weeks on end mm. to to come to the. Uh, uh, to come to the conclusion that actually, you know, we need to start listening to each other more. Yeah. So, so maybe I'm just a sort of slower, but um, yeah, I think there's almost sort of no conversation um, to be had online that couldn't be sort of had yeah. in, in a deeper, more meaningful and more interesting way offline. So Absolutely. yeah, I think yeah. Twitter, you know, pictures of birds, great, um, <laughs> but arguments uh, less so. Mm-hmm. Especially because you can't, it's so different with that screen. People say so much that they wouldn't necessarily in person. And, yeah, you know, they're yeah. a bit more cocky and a bit more bullshit yeah stuff, it's so. weird it's very it's very weird yeah so. it's a strange it's a strange place the online isn't i don't it? really know what people used to do
do before um, social media in terms of having those kind of you know anonymous arguments. Angry Maybe letters. Angry letters. Yeah, angry letters. <laughs> anonymous <laughs> letters. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do just obviously. I've just. I know we need to wrap up soon. I yeah. think the cafe is going to close soon. But I'm really curious. Obviously, we were just again talking just before we started recording. I'm just starting up an allotment. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, your one of your chapters spoke about you went to visit some uh, pe- people part, part of a commune that had been yeah, visited yeah. by was it sort of new age? Well, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's quite. It's quite. It, the success of this commune, if anybody's thinking of setting up a commune, is that it's pretty <laughs> eclectic. Yeah. So you know, and this guy said to me, you know, that that is that is how you run a successful commune. That yeah. if somebody comes along and they says, you know, this is what I'm thinking at the moment, you say it's kind of great, and you. Um, but yeah, um, that's really about so vegetables. So I think in the 50s, maybe very early 60s, this group of people, three people, moved to this caravan um, up in Findhorn, and they um, sort of came to understand that if they focused their light um, on I think it's a I think it's a peas it's, it's peas to start mm. with then they would yeah. grow to be this extraordinary um, yeah. extraordinary size and uh, so yeah the, fin- the Findhorn Foundation and this guy I was there to talk to him about Capicaley, um and he's done an awful lot in terms of trees and, and sort of regenerating pine forests and he was saying to me that you know when he focuses his love and light on a tree it grows to be um, much bigger than the trees around it mm-hmm. which sounds a bit kind of like woo woo but you know I think over the course of the afternoon he said to me that really if we're going to save um, the species that I'm interested in and that I go to talk to people about in this book you know we're going to have to love a lot more than we do mm-hmm. and, and actually I went away thinking you know what he's absolutely right mm-hmm. um, and I think there are probably there's almost nobody in that book who probably wouldn't agree with that yeah. um, in principle although they might not say it in those terms themselves. In those words I think that's the whole thing I think that's the whole thing about thinking back to basics and at the end of the day again we're all after the same common goal and it's all about loving nature and respecting nature, loving the place that where we are. And so also, <laughs> and also, love for love for love for each other. Yes. You know, which does sound sort of slightly new age, but really, I mean, um, I, I think listening to each other's opinions and and recognizing the validity of those opinions, or trying to sort of see the validity of those opinions. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of. Um, instances in in my book of uh, fishermen going to talk to the sort of big uh, ornithological organizations and and they want to share their knowledge and I think there was a time when their knowledge perhaps was overlooked and dismissed Um, but I hope we're moving towards a point where um, you know deep knowledge and and kind of folk knowledge is is appreciated and is sort of given space experience is sort of listened to and respected yeah exactly exactly well i suppose before we get kicked out the cafe we better wrap up so i just want to say thank you i think that's a really good place to end to thank you very much think about loving each other a little bit more yeah and loving the world we're in exactly Exactly. thank you very much all right thank you Speaking about the commune that Patrick visited felt like a perfect place to draw our conversation to a close. We spoke about love and the importance of that, and I think love is something that gets overlooked. Love is often thought of as something that is reserved for your family or your closest friends, but I think love is so subjective and can be used to describe deep feeling for anything that matters to us. And that's the point I'm trying to make, is that we're so busy in our lives, we forget what matters and sometimes we overlook what should matter. If perhaps we took more time to listen to each other, to hear each other and to matter to each other, then perhaps we could work more closely together to find those common goals and, no matter which side of the fence we sit on, work together to protect the thing that really matters, 
our beautiful planet. At the heart of everything we do, there is love. At the heart of every person working on the ground to fight to protect a species or an area of land or campaign about a certain policy, it's all in the name of love. Whether you call it passion or dedication, it's all the same thing. I preach about the power of together, and maybe I'm sounding totally wacky and out there, but I really do think that that is where we need to start, with love. Now, before I get accused of sounding like Hugh Grant during his monologues at the beginning and end of Love Actually, I'll stop. But I want to say thank you to Patrick for sharing his book with me and having this conversation. I want to say a final shout out to Stiff Key Stores for providing a place to record and drink tea. And a thank you to you for listening. I hope you've taken something from this and can share the passion, knowledge and the love with the people you meet. I'm Charlie and this has been Mountain Conversations.